Welcome to Peacemakers, an interview style podcast where you'll hear and learn from world changers, ministry leaders, creatives, and many others who are influencing change and bringing peace to those around them. We're so excited that you're tuning in. Here's your host, Jonathan Moya. Well, hello, everyone, and thank you for tuning in to another episode of Peacemakers. I'm super excited about today's conversation. Today's guest is Gina Thomas. Gina is a writer and a speaker, and she works in the nonprofit sector, helping empower others through holistic development. Gina has served as a missionary in northern Mexico. She holds a master's degree in international development from Eastern University and is the author of two books, A Smoldering Wick, Igniting Missions Work with Sustainable Practices, and her newest book, Separated by the Border, A Birth Mother, A Foster Mother, and A Migrant's Child, 3,000-Mile Journey. Gina lives in Chattanooga, Tennessee with her husband, Andrew, and their two children. Without further ado, let's welcome Gina Thomas. Hello, Gina. How are you? I'm well, thank you. And it's great to um, just be on your podcast. I admire the work that you do. So it's just, it's such a privilege for me. Thank you. I'm so excited to be speaking with you today. I'm so glad that you get to share with us and with our listeners. I am just excited to hear more about your story, your new book. And I think most importantly, just have a conversation on how we can respond to a topic that is very difficult for many people to have within the church. And, but I think mm. a conversation that's so relevant to the work that we are both currently tackling. Before mm-hmm. we kind of dive into, you know, that bigger part of the conversation, ask some questions and kind of get to know you a little bit. So before we dive into your work as a writer and a part of your story, talk to me a little bit about how growing up was for you. Tell me maybe about your parents how was your upbringing like yeah I love that you start there I was born in upstate New York in a small town not in New York City so Uh on the western side of New York and I grew up a lot around my Italian family my Uh mother is Italian okay her parents came to the U.S. when she was prior to her being born And so her father started a pizzeria in this town. And so I grew up in the town of my grandfather's pizzeria. And so, yeah, so it was a definitely very interesting in that not only with all the, the influence there of culture and, you know, eating good food all the time. My grandmother cooked us meals a lot and her food was so delicious. Unlike mine. Um, (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. But also just because my extended family is Catholic and Uh my mother prior to, to me being born had decided to become evangelical. Mm -hmm. And so as far as spiritual formation goes, it was very interesting thing. Now looking back on it, I mean, at the time you don't really know what you're growing up in, but looking back on it now to, to just kind of realize the different influences that have kind of brought me to the place that I'm currently at. So mm, that is important. I am a huge believer and I think, you know, it just kind of proves through more stories that I listen to and learn about people that the way that we were influenced, you know, in our upbringing definitely plays a huge factor into who we are, into the projects that we're tackling, into the work that matters to us. And so you kind of hinted a little bit about this. So what does life currently look like for you now in Chattanooga? Yeah, well, my family and I recently moved here, so we haven't quite been here a year. Okay. Um, we were living in near Charlotte, North Carolina for a long time prior to this. Mm. 
And so this is kind of a new, new phase of life. We're no longer foster parents, Mm -hmm. at least for now. So that's its own newness. Yeah. It's a lot of focusing on, you know, our kids and how they're doing and how they're handling the move and Mm -hmm. how school's going for them. And we have a four-year-old and eight-year-old and then, you know, focusing on, on my work, which brought us here with a nonprofit. And so I get to travel some with that. Uh, and then of course, also with the book, I get to travel a little bit too. So, so it's a really very different phase of life because prior to this, when we were living in North Carolina, uh-huh. prior to becoming foster parents, we were on welfare. And mm-hmm. so travel is, was not something that we got to do. And so it's interesting just now, you know, in this, in this new phase to, to just really be very aware of mm. the privilege that I have to even mm. go to conferences and to even, you know, travel and not have to pay for every single thing, yeah. you know, because it's a part of my job. And totally. so, yeah, I, I think I'm uber sensitive to some of that stuff and maybe, maybe not all of that is, is good sensitivity, but I think a good portion of it is very healthy to recognize that, you know, a lot of these places where the deep theological conversations are happening or even the practical mm. conversations are happening, we're leaving out giant groups of people huh. who never even get to come to the table. There's so much to unpack there. My mind's just kind of going all over the place. Tell me a little bit more about just like, what is a day-to-day like for you? Because you mentioned that you're going and talking at conferences, you're speaking in places, and that maybe is something new that you're learning to tackle and go about every day. So bring, bring us into mm-hmm. what your day looks like. Yeah. Well, most days I'm here at the office and the travel kind of comes in, in waves, but most of the time I'm working on, uh, I do curriculum development. And so I'm working Uh on curriculum with the nonprofit and we do some work in savings groups and we have some U.S.-based curriculum that we work on as well. And so it really is just a lot of being more aware of what tools can equip the church to do mm-hmm. very thoughtful and intentional holistic development with people around them. Mm-hmm. So it's this it's a whole new world in that of just like, you know, I think it's easier when prior to working for an organization that equipped churches, it's easier to speak to to churches kind of from afar and say, Hey, mm-hmm. white American church, what are we doing? You know, mm-hmm. like, why are we doing this? Like yeah. stop doing this. And it's, it's a different level now to, you know, I kind of brought some of that authorship into this job, but it's a different conversation. And I think a different level of understanding to really know what does it mean to speak prophetically when you do know the pain points of the churches and you yeah. do hear the difficulties that it is to, raise the resources that are needed to mm-hmm. actually make things, you know, as ideal as we like to call them out from on Twitter, right? Yeah. Like yeah. you should be doing this and you should be doing this. Sure. And you should be doing this. Well, well, what about the tension of actually trying to, to even get to the place to do some of those things? Yeah. So, so yeah, that's a, that's a new phase for me and it's, it's important work and it's important for me to, to learn from this other side of things in a way that I haven't before. Yeah. And then as far as speaking goes, I was able this past spring to speak at a couple of different conferences, some of them seminars, and I really do enjoy that. I, I was a teacher when we lived in Mexico, so okay. um, and it always felt that the higher I got in levels, like, 
I was teaching middle school and then I was teaching high school. I was <laughs> like, yes, I can get deeper, you know? Yeah, yeah. Um, so I really love to, to kind of teach seminars and, and just go really deep with, with people, with adults and, hmm. and really, especially when it, we're talking about faith and like, how does our faith affect how we live? That's, that's very enjoyable work to me. So, yeah, well, that's, that's really good, which leads me to kind of my next question because you hinted towards this. So as you've been tra- kind of transitioning in different parts of your life, you and your husband spent some time in Mexico as a missionary couple. So talk to us a little bit about that. What was life like on the mission field? And how has being in Mexico influenced who you are today and kind of how you are helping the current church, church culture think about missions? Well, we were in Mexico for four and a half years. And during that time, I taught English at a school that our church, our local church had put on. And so it was, you know, run by the youth pastor who's a principal and really offered the community a deeper education than the public school did. So we did that for a while and and I kept teaching throughout our time there, but we, we then also started a coffee shop ministry. Essentially there's, there's a place right near where we lived that is called Petro Chico and a lot of international climbers come Hmm. to climb. And then a lot of the local Mexicans don't climb. And so um, we tried to, to let our coffee shop be a place that really connected, um, both, both the international rock climbing community and the local Mexican community. And we got to see some really beautiful things come of that. But what I would say about what it taught me about missions and the whole of, of my thoughts can be, can be found in my first book, a smoldering wick. I think one of the biggest things, and I'm really happy to be, to hear more and more of this conversation going on where we're talking about decolonizing missions, Hmm. And I think that that phrase gives life to something that I think I was tapping into, but I didn't really know what to call it and I didn't yeah. really understand it. Yeah. Just really trying to push churches to really look at what are we doing and are we actually partnering with people mm. or are we just saying that we're partnering, but mm-hmm. actually colonizing. Mm. And what I mean by colonizing is not, you know, coming in and taking over, but what I mean is in a sense for that week, like we would see on the other side of things that, you know, a church that had resources and wanted to come down and do a missions group would come and really like deter all of our lives for a week or 10 days. And I would have to stop teaching classes because I would need to translate, like there needed to be somebody to translate. And so, you know, the, the regular flow of life, was interrupted in a way that wasn't actually beneficial to the Mm. people who are there. And so I really call for people to, to pay more attention to this kind of stuff and to really get what does it mean to be a partner church and to really do participatory development within our missions work rather than, than being people who come and say, Hey, this is what we can do. This is what Mm -hmm. we're going to do. What timeframe can we come? And I have this one tool that I think is very helpful for churches yeah. it's called a typology of participation where people can actually look at. So this was, this typology was actually created by an economics professor in England, but then I adapted it to short-term missions uh-huh. so that we can actually understand, are we hindering people 
by pretending that we're doing participation, but we're actually manipulating. Hmm. Um, and I think it's a really good wow. tool for, for reflection, um, yeah. for that reason. So, yeah. Wow. Yes. So we will link that on our show notes and uh, that's something that I'm even just more intrigued to learn more about. And part of the reason why I wanted to start our conversation focusing on just this conversation of missions and the mobilization of the church is because part of our vision and part of the mission of Border Perspective is to mobilize the church. And so for Mm -hmm. most of my adult life, I think the first time I started translating for church or mission teams was when I was 15. I was forced to. My dad just, you know, Churches were coming through the border, going into Mexico. And so he said, you're not doing anything at home, so go translate. And, you know, at that time growing up, it was just, oh, you know, make a little bit of money, got got paid for it, met some people. And then I never anticipated that most of my adult life, I was going to spend it in short-term missions. But from my early 20s till I was 30, right before starting Border Perspective, I, I spent it in short-term missions in land all over mm. Latin America. And by the end of my time, I was completely disillusioned with the work that I was mm. doing in many ways is why I left the nonprofit that I was with because I felt that because I grew up on the border, I know the border, we were bringing teams there, but teams were just coming and in many ways, just doing a painting project or a roofing project. But mm. I think w- our primary focus wasn't to allow the churches that were partnering with us or that wanted to partner with us to allow them to enter into the reality and the hardships of what the communities were facing, of what yeah. the realities and the struggles are, you know, for border communities on a mm. day-to-day basis. And so with Border Perspective... Mm. I kind of shifted our work to be more service learning, to be educational, to be to be mm. more immersive in a way that, you know, let's tackle these big conversations. Let's tackle the big things that I think are sometimes hard for us to really mm. dive into, but are so meaningful and important to really do healthy ministry together, you know, cross-culturally with other people. And so, so I appreciate yeah. your, just these brief thoughts on, on that. And I will definitely look at the tools that you have, even just for the one, the work that we're currently doing and how to better that. And I'm, I'm glad that you shared some of that insight with us today about it. And you were recently featured in Christianity Today on this very topic. Yes, I, I connected with Becca McNeil, the immigration editor at Christianity okay. Today. And so much of the work that I'm trying to do today it is really okay. I'm looking at why was I disillusioned with the work that I was doing? And in many ways, why didn't I, you know, why couldn't I make the shift to what I was mm. feeling convicted about? And I think it, I just needed some separation. And with border yeah. perspective, I'm definitely trying to just kind of figure out what are those things that I struggle with and how can I be a part of the solution in providing different avenues for us to engage in this, I think what has been a right passage for the church, right? Short-term missions for many students and and churches. And so how can we be more intentional, especially because I, I grew up on the border and I grew up on the receiving end and I now kind of like 
mm-hmm. I mean, it's kind of like what you were saying earlier. Now we find ourselves on the other end, right? Where we're mm. kind of helping advance the conversation and some of yeah. the topics of conversation and really the values of how to do ministry in a better context. But you bless that work. I'm so glad you're doing that work. It's very important. Thank you so much. Thank you. And you have traveled to the border yourself, right? With a couple of groups of leaders. Is that right? Uh, One time. Yes, I did. Okay. So where Um, did you travel? Can you talk to me a little bit about that? Yeah, we went to, um, I was with a group of kind of a, a mixture of people from National Immigration Forum, World Relief, and CCDA. Mm-hmm. And we went to McAllen, Texas. Yeah. And saw the detention facility at mm. Port Isabel. Yeah. And then we also, we're, we were also at Ursula, um, mm. the processing center. That came at a very important time for mm-hmm. me. I was able to do that last, actually last year, about this time. It was towards the end of September yeah. of last year. And it was just a couple of months after our foster daughter was reunited with her mm-hmm. mother. Yeah. Um, and it was in the midst of kind of writing this book. Yeah. And so to really see firsthand these places was beyond eye-opening, certainly emotionally opening, and just very what's the word deep human work, Mm -hmm. like to really think through what is humanity and what does the gospel say to our humanity and what does the gospel say to us when we dehumanize others? Mm. Yes. So I grew up in, in the South Texas region in the Rio Grande Valley. So some of the, Yeah. Places that you're mentioning are even some of uh, the locations and places that we point out during some of our border journey trips, just because they're so relevant Mm. to the conversation and really take people beyond the headlines. Right. And so, um, yes, I think it's like you're saying, when we experience it firsthand, it's, it's, you process it differently and Mm -hmm. you you have, you have to wrestle with it differently. Yes. And because there's more emotion tied to it where when we're scrolling on our phones, it's just a headline, right? There's no tie to Mm -hmm. it whatsoever. So you took this trip and you went in with a Mm -hmm. more of a learning posture. And so how was this shaped and influenced by the realities that you saw? on the border. And I'm, mm-hmm. I, I love this quote by Mr. Rogers that talks about once you've heard or know somebody mm-hmm. else's reality, there's no way you can't empathize mm-hmm. with them. And so you experienced that firsthand. Yeah. Wow. That's a good, that's a really good quote. We have no more excuses, right? Once yeah. we, once we hear stories yep. and we have to enter into the humanity of mm-hmm. others. The trip was very heart-wrenching for me because what was very likely was that my foster daughter had had walked through at least the processing center. She she had probably been at that particular one. You know, for me writing a story about one girl and mm-hmm. and one family, this trip showed me that this is not just one girl and mm-hmm. one family. I think that as a white evangelical growing up in the white evangelical church, there's this concept of righteousness that we were taught that is very individual Hmm. rather than justice, which is more communal. Hmm. And I think it's easy for us, especially because of that theology to 
kind of say, hold up a story and say, oh yeah, that's horrible for that one person. And then kind of end the statement there rather than recognizing that this is not just one person, that this is Mm -hmm. a systemic issue, that dehumanization is something that we are funding with our taxes, Mm -hmm. that we don't ever have to interact with this uh, underbelly of what our nation is, but it is there and we need to recognize it for what it is. And really that, you know, a lot of these dehumanizing practices have been going on for a very long time. It's not just the Trump administration, even though there's plenty to say about that. Uh Um, But it's, it's not just that, that this is, this is something that's been going on for way too long. Child separation itself has been going on for way too long beyond zero tolerance policy. And every time that, that ICE deports someone, if they are a father or a mother and Mm -hmm. their children are being left behind, then this is child separation. Mm -hmm. Like we have a problem in the United States with this. And when Mm -hmm. we look at our own history, we also see that that problem was not just towards Latino Americans, but it was African Americans. It was native Mm -hmm. Americans. It was Asian Americans. Like this is not just one situation that is awful. This is, the fruit of a very rotted system. Hmm. And we have got to face that reality and start pushing against it because it is not the kingdom of God. I can imagine that for us who are deep in this type of work, when I hear the term family separation policy or different terminology like that, I completely know exactly what you're talking about. But can you explain to maybe some of our listeners who this conversation is new and they're trying to learn what are the implications? Mm-hmm. What is the impact of such a policy? And there's some staggering stats, right? As the policy was actually mm-hmm. active and even, mm-hmm. even now that uh, there's still some of that happening. So walk us through that a little bit. Yeah. So officially and publicly, In April of 2017, the Justice Department declared zero tolerance policy. Most news outlets did not pick it up until May. So it was about a month of it happening Mm -hmm. prior to it really being very public. And then it continued until June, officially, publicly. Uh However, there's a lot of reports now saying that it it probably started in June 2017, but it didn't go public until April of 2018. Uh And so... The situation was the zero tolerance policy was basically if you come across the border illegally, you will be separated Mm -hmm. from your children. The children will be held in a separate facility. And because of the Florence Agreement, which was a 1997 agreement saying that children shouldn't be held in custody for longer than 20 days. Uh So that's why they separated so Mm -hmm. that they could process the adults quicker and move them on and keep the children and deal, you know, because they had to by law. And so that's why you might be seeing now there's a lot of, there has been a lot of the Trump administration really trying to push against that Flores agreement and trying Mm. to, to make it null and void. There was just a recent court order that said that, no, it's going to stay intact, but I imagine they'll probably try to push up against it again. So what was happening was, you know, basically at the Ursula Processing Center where we visited, that was really like where a lot of this like ripping families apart was yeah. actually happening. 
And so the mothers and fathers would go into one place and the children were processed and would go through Office of Refugee Resettlement or be processed mm-hmm. in a child detention facility. And then the pro- part of the problem was that the administration didn't have a plan for reuniting. Yeah. Um, so nobody kept track of wow. who belonged to who, which just is, you know, it, it's almost beyond believable, unbelievable, right? Yeah. Because how does that not even cross your mind, right? From the latest numbers that I know, for sure that during that between April and June of 2018, 2,737 children were separated from their parents. There's still stuff happening now that's mm-hmm. saying that this is still going on. Not maybe not at a mass as massively and as publicly as it was before, but it's still happening as a way to deter people to come to the United States, which really, to be very honest, like points to the fact that there really hasn't been a lot of research done on what's even the pull factor and push factor of like bringing people here. Yeah. Because I feel like if you really did that research and you talk to officials who know what they're talking about, migration officials, they'll explain that this is not going to be a very effective deterrent. But all that to say that very inhumane practice that really was even called out by the United Nations as inhumane continued for, for way too long. There was a lot of pushback publicly, which I think actually helped kind of finally get to that point in June that made the Trump administration be like, okay, this isn't, this isn't going good for us. You know, maybe our our numbers aren't, aren't doing so well here, but you know, I think one of the saddest things about all that was to hear that there were some evangelicals who were saying, well, if you break the law, then this is what's going to happen. And, you know, it just seems like such a slap in the face to a God who reminds us and reveals himself to us from someone who was very much against the empire of his day. Right. Mm -hmm. And, you know, this is again, just fruit from very bad theology that says that we always have to follow the law. Like there are so many instances in the Bible of people not following the law um, in order to follow Yahweh. So it's just, I think that's probably one of the saddest things for me that my people are not recognizing Mm -hmm. how unchristian some of these practices are. There is so much processing and so much emotion with I think this difficult conversation and most importantly, I think I relate to you because as a foster family, you've lived this firsthand. You've experienced it firsthand and you found a mutuality with people who have been separated and were impacted by this Mm. policy. And it's in the same lines of my work. You know, I've been traveling to the border since April, at least once a month. The realities and the hardships and the rawness of the stories are things that I like to say, well, yeah, you often heard about this in other parts of the world, but this is happening within our borders where, yeah, you know, and, and that's, I think, hard for us to grasp. And so I, I don't want to dismiss, I think, the emotion behind it because it's draining and it's hard and it's difficult even for me to enter into some of this dialogue because so much of it is personal, personal in a way that it impacts the my ability to process things and to really wrestle with what are these biblical truths that I hold dear and what do they mean? And am I being the best example and stewarding them as, as best as I can? So I, I, mm-hmm. I, to, I totally get where you're coming from. 
So now that you give us a little bit of background and context into the family separation policy, so your book, Separated by the Border, really highlights a very important experience that you and your family walked through. Can you tell us a little bit about the background of this book? So in, I believe it was September of 2017, my husband and I became foster parents and in October, we were placed with, with two girls. Around February, um, we had since one girl had moved to a different home. And so we had one foster daughter in our home. Mm-hmm. And our social worker knew that, that we had lived in Mexico and that we both spoke Spanish. And so when a little girl who only spoke Spanish was picked up by the police and brought to the social worker's office... They needed to find a place for her to stay for the weekend. And so they called us and said, this will just be the weekend. ICE is involved. That's Immigration and Customs Enforcement. And then Mm -hmm. ORR, Office of Refugee Resettlement, is also Mm -hmm. involved in this case. So we just need you guys to to keep her, you know, at your house for the weekend. And then on Monday, come to court. And, you know, the handoff will, will then be, you know, back from the state, back to the federal government for her. And so we, we showed up in court on Monday and, and no one else did. And so wow. it happened again the following Monday. And so we were then, we then become foster parents to, to this girl. And there's, you know, there's a million more details in the story beyond that. But basically sure. what happened was there were a lot of miscommunication or, or misinformed details that, that we thought when she first came into our home, like a lot of foster care cases, and we don't always know all the information, but when we found out that her mom had, that she had been separated from her mom and that her mom had since been back in Harris for, uh, we didn't know how long at the time, but her mom actually had just recently gotten back to Honduras. And so we were able to connect with her mom and basically realized, and the social workers as well, realized that her mom was safe and appropriate and a very loving mom and that this girl needed to return to her family. It was a very weird situation for foster care because it's not, it wasn't normal, you know, at the time. And and in the area that we live in, it wasn't normal for something like this to happen. And so we didn't really, we all kind of knew, you know, some of the stuff that was happening with the administration, but we didn't know that this was part of that. And all that we knew was that she was in a sponsorship family, which is what happens when unaccompanied minors come through in our process, they then go to a sponsorship family. So we knew that she was in a sponsorship family's home, but that sponsorship family, unlike foster families, sponsorship families don't get paid to take care of the the children that come into their home. And so not that foster families get paid a lot, but they do get paid and that that is a huge difference. And I think it's, it's worthwhile to have conversations about why that's not happening and, and if it should or not, because Every mouth costs money, no matter what, you know, I mean, there's, there's a lot of extra economic pressure that's put on these families that really aren't, you know, aren't spoken to. We don't speak a lot about how difficult that could be for a sponsorship family. So she was living in a, in a home with two single moms, both moms worked and Mm -hmm. all the kids except her went to school. And so there wasn't really a place for her to go during the day. Yeah. She was too young for kindergarten. So she stayed home alone and that, you know, led to her coming into foster care. So once she was in our home, she came into our home end of February and we did what we could with the help of the consulate and other social workers and getting in contact with her mom to go through the the foster care process, which first involves a home study. So that home study needed to be done in Honduras. Mm-hmm. Um, and that was done through the consulate. And then the court in North Carolina has to sign off and say, 
that, that this mother is appropriate and that the house is appropriate and safe and that the child should be reunified. So that court order came in May and then it took another month for us to get the papers from the consulate for her to be able to travel back to Honduras. So if you you know can imagine, she didn't come up with papers to travel. Yeah. So we had to make sure that she had some kind of travel documents to be able to get back. So, so then in July, early July of 2018, my husband and I uh, went to Honduras with her and got to see her reunited with her mom and her brothers, mm-hmm. which was just a beautiful wow. and wonderful experience. I was on your website and I saw the clip that is being used to kind of market the book. And there's some images there, right? From the reunification uh, moment. I, I, it was emotional. I think just to even witness that. And as I've been looking through your book, there's just so many more details about that process that I think is so foreign to many of us, right? Even just like becoming a foster parent, reunification, like separation at the border, just even the policy that impacts all of those things. Why was it important for you to share this life experience through writing? Oh, that's a good question. I process everything through writing personally. So I think either, even if it was never written for a public audience, I still uh-huh. would have written about it to process myself. It was a, it was a tough thing to write for many reasons. If you read the book, you'll find there are some very difficult portions even to read. Yeah. And, and it was also difficult in the sense of just recognizing who I am and the privilege that I have hmm. To even publish a book and that part of the story is not mine. So trying really hard to allow Lupe to tell her story the way that she wanted to tell it mm. and not kind of add more to that portion of it yeah. was really important for me. And, and really just even to, at the very beginning to get her permission to write the book because it's so much her story and, and she really wanted this to be something that would help not only other people in the States to recognize what's happening, but also to help her fellow Central Americans to recognize yeah. what might be happening if they do decide to make the journey North. You know, she said that she knew there were certain dangers for sure. Mm-hmm. Like that was without a doubt, but the depths of those dangers were then lived out by her and it might be that in situations that where people are really trying hard to make a very difficult decision about whether to stay or to go, that maybe a story like this could help influence them and help them make a more informed decision on what, what to do. So that was her hope for it. So eventually yeah. the hope is that the book will be translated into Spanish mm, and that'd that would be amazing. Yeah, that that's certainly a hope. I, I don't know if it'll happen. I'm not mm-hmm. I'm trying to make that work, but I don't know exactly how to make it work beyond, you know, what I'm trying to do, but, sure. but yeah, that is the hope because ultimately this is, this is a story for, for her, for Lupe and for, for people who find themselves in very, very difficult scenarios where they have to make just a, just almost an inhumane decision hmm. that is needed to be made in those moments. In the last two months, I've had the same question be asked to me what is the trauma Mm. that asylum seekers are Mm. experiencing what are the difficult situation and and i don't think that 
the people asking these questions come are coming at it from a negative perspective, I think there's just a, mm-hmm. a, dis- mm-hmm. a huge disconnect, right? And so yeah. I found myself yeah. actually using uh, Lupus story and your book as a resource because obviously I have personal experiences and things that I've witnessed and stories that I've personally heard and seen. But I'm like, well, you should pick up Gina's book because it really hmm. graphically details just the traumatic experiences and very difficult decisions yeah. that asylum seekers and migrant families have to be faced with Mm -hmm. right and so Mm -hmm. as they continue their journey and it's not easy I think no I don't I don't know sometimes how to convey that because if we're not witnessing witnessing it right in front of us then Mm -hmm. we're we're completely disconnected right and so yeah was that a surprise to you uh, from writing, obviously, your first missions book, even though that was a tough one, too, in different ways? Yeah. Was there anything that surprised you about writing Separated by the Border? Yeah, actually, there were there were a couple of things. First of all, I didn't know. So if you've read the book or are going to read the book, I didn't know Lupe's story as, until after she had said yes to us writing it. Wow. So I did not know, I mean, I knew that she had been held by the smugglers, but I didn't know what she suffered, Hmm. um, while that was happening. And I didn't know her story growing up. I did not know that. And Hmm. so again, for her to say yes to this story, I think I just, I can't ever diminish how powerful that is and and how brave it is Mm -hmm. for someone to to say yes to allowing, you know, this story to be told in the way that it was told. Um, so those were big surprises to me. Another big surprise was just the, the depth of my own doubt in my own faith that came from definitely from living, you know, our time with them together. Certainly that it was coming at that time, but then also hearing Lupe's story, writing her story, editing her story, and then sending it back to her in Spanish and making sure everything was, was mm-hmm. how she wanted it. Like that process of just continually going back to a very traumatic story, trying really hard not to ask her more questions than, mm-hmm. than was necessary so that I didn't add to her trauma. Yeah. Just kind of going back over and over again, this whole, you know, there's a moment where she feels like God has just completely forsaken her Mm -hmm. and I feel it too. And I'm mad Mm -hmm. at God Mm -hmm. for forsaking her. Yeah. Um, And I like, I have to wrestle with that and I continue Mm -hmm. to wrestle with it. It makes my faith deeper in a lot of ways, but Mm -hmm. that death is not necessarily fun or easy Mm -hmm. or great. You know, like sometimes I would rather have a shallow face if Uh, that makes sense. Yeah. It sounds much easier. (laughs) It's yeah. Yeah. I, I totally, I'm trying to relate and to just gather the emotion, uh, that I, I can only imagine, uh, you had to go through and continue to go through. And one of the ways that border perspective started was I took a nine day border journey trip. And Mm -hmm. many people thought that traveling the border for nine days was the tough part. Well, the processing has continued three years after. Mm 
right? And mm. the wrestling even continues even deeper than ever before. And as we dive deeper into things, we're realizing that some of these questions that we have don't necessarily have answers or solutions or easy ways to talk about them. So I totally get where you're coming from. And we have to be able to be hopeful and and find beauty in the depthness of all of it. But sometimes it's yeah. it's a big struggle. So yeah, yes. so I'm there with you. It is. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yes, absolutely. So your book focuses on reunification and why this was so important. Why -hmm. should we as Christians be advocating for family reunification, not only in cases like this, but just in general? Why would we ever think that we shouldn't? We have been constantly like Mm. throughout the history of the United States. It feels like evangelicals are like family values, family values, you know, like that's like, one of the biggest things that we fight for Mm -hmm. and to see how that argument is not translating Mm -hmm. to family reunification just blows my mind. How can we say that we are for family values if we're not even going to fight for families to be together? That just doesn't make sense. You can't have a family value if you don't have a family. Mm. It doesn't compute in my mind. But at the same time, like I talked about before, you know, we have a history in this nation of doing this kind of stuff. And I think the reality is that if white middle-class families were being torn apart, we would stop everything Hmm. to make sure that that injustice was right. You know, that that Hmm. wrong was righted. And, and sadly there is white supremacy at work, even in this. Hmm. And we have to really lament the ways that our Christian faith has been co-opted by white supremacy Hmm. because it is, and it continues to be, And if we don't do serious self-reflection and if we don't ask the questions, okay, well, what if this was happening to a white family? Mm -hmm. What if this was happening, you know, to European immigrants who are coming? And if our answer is not the same for them as it is for what Mm -hmm. it's, what is currently happening, then there is something very wrong in us that we need to repent and we need to lament about Mm -hmm. and we need to, to, you know, bring before the throne of God and say, I'm sorry, this is horrible, ugly stuff, but I need to, to rectify it and I need to make yeah. it better. And really, you know, when we talk about foster care, that is, that is what foster care did for me in a mm-hmm. lot of ways was it brought me face to face with the demons inside of me. And I'm not saying that other things don't do that and other, and that people can't do that if they, you know, don't, participate in foster care. But I think it, for me, it was one of the most tangible ways for me to recognize the depth of darkness that is inside me, but also understand that the depth of, of light that is also there. And I talk in my book about how the kingdom of God and the kingdom of darkness feel to me now a lot more like two trees that hmm. whose branches are intertwined and the work of the kingdom is unwrapping you know, the, the two from themselves. And some of those branches are inside of us Hmm. and some of them are in, you know, our country and our policies in Hmm. our, even in our religious practices, but paying attention to the fact that where the kingdom of darkness is, the kingdom of light is always right there too. Yeah. 
That's powerful. How can our listeners find your work and find more details about everything that you're talking about and just go deeper into some of the principles that you're talking about? I'm mostly on Twitter. <laughs> it's Gina L. Thomas. It's G-E-N-A-L Thomas. But also my website, GinaThomas.com. I have a lot of different things there, some resources for people who are interested in immigration, interested in, in foster care, interested in missions. Those are kind of like the three areas that I write and talk about quite a bit. And then when I can, you know, I write and speak at, at different places. So mm-hmm. I'd love to connect with people. Great. Well, thank you so much for just sharing about your book. Thank you for sharing about your story. Thank you for challenging us as the body of Christ to just know our history, understand just the biblical truths that we hold dear to. And I am so thankful for the work that you're doing. I hope that your book will continue to inspire and open the eyes um, that are shut, right, to the realities of the trauma and the experiences that many of us are disconnected to. And so thank you again for sharing with us. And I'm excited to finish reading the book myself and to just continue diving into uh, this difficult conversation. Well, thank you. And thank you for the work that you do too. You know, we're, we're in this together and I, I always appreciate getting to know people who are, who are doing the tough work and, you know, making a lot of sacrifices to do it. I, I appreciate what you and your family are, are up to. I think it's very important. Thank you so much. And to our listeners, thank you for tuning into this conversation. You can find Gina on Twitter and you can also check out her website at GinaThomas.com. And most importantly, you can order her book on Amazon today. Again, Gina, thank you so much for joining us on today's episode and thank you for your work. If there was anything that stood out to you from this conversation, we'll post links about it in the show notes. So make sure to check those out. Until next time. Thank you for listening to this episode of Peacemakers. Wherever you subscribe to podcasts, go ahead and hit subscribe. Please leave us a positive review on iTunes and share this episode with your friends through Instagram stories on Spotify. And most importantly, don't forget to join us for our next exciting episode. Peacemakers podcast is made possible by Border Perspective. Border Perspective partners with ministry leaders and organizations to host conversations on social and biblical issues that help equip the church to love our neighbor the way God intended. You can also join Border Perspective on a service learning trip along the southern border. These trips are immersive, educational, and intentionally place you into the lives of immigrant leaders serving families on the South Texas and Mexico border. To learn more about how you can join Border Perspective's peacemaking mission, visit borderperspective.org.